You may have heard before of a collection of books called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a group of writings that are not typically included in Protestant Bibles because they're not inspired scripture. They don't come to us from God as the books of scripture do, but they can be helpful books for us. They're not books that we have to be scared of. They're not books that we uh, say that no one's allowed to read. We just say they're not inspired scripture. They're not God's word, but they can be helpful. And one of the ways they can be helpful is in seeing how some of what Daniel was shown in his visions, how those things were fulfilled. Because when you read the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament ends more or less with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, where the Jews have returned from exile, many of them, some like Esther, remained in exile. And the Persian, uh, Medo-Persian Empire is in power, and they rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the wall, but they're still waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And then 400 years later, the New Testament opens with the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, and the Roman Empire is in power. Jesus uh, you know, interacts with Pilate, who's a Roman governor. There are Roman soldiers present in Israel during Jesus' ministry. Right In between the end of the Old Testament, where the Medo-Persians are in power, and the beginning of the New Testament, where the Romans are in power, is the entire Greek Empire, which doesn't show up, as far as the story goes, in the Bible anywhere. It's prophesied about in Daniel and and even uh, at least one other place, I think. But we don't get to read that story in Scripture. But there is a book in the Apocrypha, which again, it's not Scripture, it's not inspired, it's not perfect, it's not God's Word, but it is a helpful book of history that describes some of what the Greeks did to the Jews in between the time of the Old and the New Testament. And the main reason why that's significant for us, whether you're you know, into history or not, is because Daniel was shown what would happen during the Greek Empire. And this is one of the few places we can read about how that prophecy, how those visions were actually fulfilled. So I, I bring that up here at the outset because later in the sermon... I'm going to quote extensively from one of those books in the Apocrypha called 1 Maccabees, and I just want you to know up front, I'm not quoting it like it's the Bible. It's not the Bible. It's not Scripture. I'm quoting it like I would quote to you or or summarize for you a a history book, a history text. Okay? Um, And so, here in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see another vision that Daniel saw, and this one is mainly about the second and third empires that we've been introduced to through Nebuchadnezzar's four-part golden statue and through Daniel's vision of the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. So far, we've had sort of big picture about the four empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 7 focused a little bit more in detail on that fourth beast, right? that fourth empire. In chapter 8, the focus is on the transition from the Medo-Persian empire to the Greek empire, and in particular, one 
infamous, wicked individual that we know as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He shows up in this vision as the little horn. All right, so that's what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 8. Let's walk through this vision together. Now, this vision took place during the reign of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar, remember, was the king back in chapter 5 who saw the handwriting on the wall that Daniel came to interpret. He was the last king of the Babylonian Empire because that night he saw the handwriting on the wall was the night that he died and the night that the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians. What's significant about that timing when this vision took place in the third year of King Belshazzar, he says in verse 1, is that when he saw that vision, notice where he was. Verse 2, I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, Susa, the citadel, would be the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so the Babylonians are still in power when Daniel has this vision. But in the vision, he's taken to the city that would be the the citadel, the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. If you read the book of Esther, this is where Esther was. She was in Susa when she became queen and uh, was married to King Ahasuerus, who was one of the Persian kings. That's where they were. They were in Susa, the citadel. So he's seeing this in Susa because it's going to be about the Medo-Persians and then about the Greeks. And what he sees in this vision at this canal is he sees a ram. And the ram has two horns, but one of the horns is higher than the other, longer than the other. And this is just like the vision in chapter 7 where the second beast looked like a bear who was kind of lopsided, right? He was raised up on one side. Just like the bear, the ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire, has two parts, one of which is stronger than the other, evidently, right? And so we're told later in uh, verse 20, when Daniel receives the interpretation that as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So we don't have to guess, right? We're told that's what we would have guessed, but then it's explained for us. That's the empire represented by the ram with the two horns. It's the Medo-Persian empire. And when he looks at this ram, right, he saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. And he says, no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. So he's dominating in three directions of the compass. And no other country, no other power can stand against him for a time. Then Daniel sees a goat. In verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He, he doesn't touch the ground because he's moving so fast, right? You say, I'm running so fast, it's like my feet didn't even touch the ground. He's moving rapidly across the world, and he has one horn representing one king, right? And he comes. To the, uh, to the ram with the two horns. And verse 7 says, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So for a time, there was no one who could rescue from the power of the ram, but now there's no one who can rescue from the power of the goat, which is just a reminder 
that every empire, well, let's say at least many empires, seem invincible until they're not. None of them last forever. That's one of the things we see over and over in the book of Daniel, is that great empires rise and great empires fall, and it is only the kingdom of God that will never fall. Only the kingdom of God that will last forever. So the goat destroys the ram, and this goat represents the Greek empire, and specifically, at at the first part of the vision, represents Alexander the Great. Remember, Alexander the Great conquered virtually the whole known world by the time he was in his early 30s. That makes the rest of us seem lazy, right? I mean, he he rapidly conquered everything he could conquer virtually, and so that's why this uh, goat is moving without touching the ground because he's moving so rapidly. In chapter 7, the same uh, kingdom and king were represented by a leopard that had four wings. Again, moving very rapidly. And uh, they conquered the Medo-Persian Empire and become great. But then it says the great horn was broken in verse 8. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. When Alexander the Great died, his empire, also at a young age, still in his 30s when he died, uh, when he died, his empire was divided into four parts among four of his generals, and that's what the four horns represent. Just like in chapter 7, that leopard had four heads, because that Greek empire, again, will be divided four ways after Alexander's death. And again, we're not guessing on these things. Verse 21 confirms the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And then verse 22 says, as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Okay, so that's talking about the Greeks and about Alexander the Great. Now, things get really disturbing in verse 9. It says, out of one of them, that is, out of one of these four horns, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, if you had to guess, what would you think the glorious land is? That's the promised land, right? That's Israel. So, He's growing great toward the south, the east, and toward the promised land, toward Israel. Verse 10 says, It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, what does that mean? Well, probably when it says he threw some of the stars down to the ground. I mean, First of all, we know we can't be talking about literal stars, right? Because a star that comes down to the ground disintegrates the whole planet, right? This is not possible, okay? So what is he talking? We know all of this is symbolic, right? We've been dealing with symbolic imagery all through this book, from the four-part statue and the four beasts and now a ram and a goat. We know this is symbolism. What does it symbolize? Right? Well, probably the stars that it threw down to the ground and trampled on them represent the Jewish people. Right? Think about when God promised Abraham that he would have, have numerous offspring. Remember, some of the language God used in that promise is he said that your offspring will be as numerous 
as the stars in the heaven. So probably, when he says he threw down some of the stars, that means he was trampling on, he was destroying, he was throwing down some of the Jewish people. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Who's that? I think some people say it could be Michael, the prince, uh, one of the princes of the hosts of heaven, one of the great angels. I think some people say maybe it was one of the leaders of the Jewish people. Right? I think I think some suggest it might even be talking about God Himself. In which case, it wouldn't mean that He actually became as great as God, but perhaps that He thought He did. Right? In His in His own mind, that's how great he, become, he became, or how highly he thought of himself. It's difficult to nail down who exactly that would be talking about. But then it says, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So this little horn is not only going to harm God's people, the Jewish people, but he is also evidently going to remove the offerings and sacrifices that are offered to the Lord and is going to overthrow his sanctuary, overthrow the temple. And then it says in verse 12, a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So he's going to succeed in what he's doing even though what he's doing is wicked. Right? Throwing truth to the ground is never a good thing. And, and then it says, verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? So this vision that Daniel has just seen, it has to do with the regular burnt offering, the sacrifices being taken away from the Lord. It has to do with a transgression that makes desolate, which sounds a lot like the abomination of desolation that Scripture talks about as well, and I think we'll encounter later in Daniel. And the sanctuary being given over to being trampled. And he asks, how long is that going to last? And he's told 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So it's going to be a temporary uh, but terrible period of time. Okay, so that last part of the vision, that gets a little more difficult to interpret, right? The ram, no problem. The goat, no problem. The little horn, a little bit more difficult. And Daniel, just like in chapter 7, he wants to know and understand what he has seen. So in verse 15, it says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And someone even commands Gabriel to explain it. To Daniel in verse 16, I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So, Gabriel, of course, is one of the other of the two angels that are named in Scripture, Michael and Gabriel. Gabriel's the one who brought news to Mary that she was going to bear the Messiah, that Jesus would be born of her. And this same Gabriel is 
told to explain to Daniel what he has just seen. And as often happens in Scripture, when the angel Gabriel comes near to Daniel, he's frightened in verse 17. He falls on his face. And Gabriel says to Daniel, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, when we hear that phrase, we automatically jump to the very end, right? Like the return of Christ, final judgment, new creation. But, biblically speaking, the end began with the coming of Jesus. Right? So from the time that Jesus came and was born and lived and died, we have been in the last days, we have been in the end times, biblically speaking, since then. Hebrews 1, for example, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So, this could just mean, it doesn't have to mean that it's talking about all the way in the future, though it could point to some things that are going to happen all the way at the end as well. It could just be referring to events that are going to happen around the time of the coming of Christ the first time as well. Right? So, that's what Gabriel tells him. And then he explains, as we've seen already in verse 20 and 21 and 22, about the ram and the goat, that they represent the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire. And then he explains about the little horn, right? Beginning in verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy many or excuse me, destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So again, he's going to destroy God's people. That seems to confirm that we were on the right track when we said that the vision of him trampling some of the, uh, the stars from the heavens, that that has to do with the saints, with God's holy people, the Jews. Right? And then he says, verse 25, by his cunning He shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. So he's going to think very highly of himself. And it says, without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Which, again, suggests that God is going to be the one who destroys him. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Now, This is a vision that Daniel received in the 500s B.C. So 500 years before the coming of Christ. What this vision reveals about the little horn would be fulfilled 350, 400 years later, something like that. About 150 years before Jesus came. So centuries after Daniel saw this. It is many days after the vision that he is going to see these things. Now, when and how was this fulfilled? Again, this is where there's no book in the Bible that records how this happened, what took place, because these events take place between the Old and the New Testament. So, how do we know how this was fulfilled? We 
believe that it was. We believe that it's God's word. We believe that God's trustworthy. We believe that this happened. But how did it happen? When did it happen? Who is it talking about? How did all of these things take place? Those things we are able to read, again, in a book from the Apocrypha called 1 Maccabees. It's, it's a history book written from a Jewish perspective, right? And it relates what happened. The book begins with um, Philip of Macedon as the king of Greece, and then it moves to Alexander the Great, uh, who, again, conquered pretty much the whole known world, and then it talks about his uh, empire being divided up, if I'm not mistaken. And In fact, it kind of reads at the beginning like it's intentionally telling us how Daniel's visions were fulfilled. They're probably right, conscious that what they are writing about is the very thing that Daniel wrote about. Uh, prophetically, they're writing now as a historical Fulfillment. So here's some of what they say that describe how this was fulfilled. It says, Antiochus, who came from one of those four generals uh, who uh, took Alexander's the empire when it was broken up, Antiochus turned after attacking Egypt in, one, in the 143rd year, and he went up against Israel and Jerusalem with a fierce army. And he entered the sanctuary. In arrogance, remember how it talked about the sanctuary being uh, uh, overthrown and whatnot. So he enters the sanctuary in arrogance. Maccabees says, and took the gold altar and the lampstand for the light, and all its accessories, and the table of presentation, and the drink offering cups, and the bowls, and the golden censers, and the veil, and the crowns, and the golden adornment applied to the face of the temple walls, and he peeled it all off. And he took the gold and silver and the valuable accessories, and he took the hidden treasures that he found. And having taken everything, he departed to his land, and he made a massacre and spoke with great disdain. That sounds a lot like what Daniel is telling us this little horn is going to be like. He's arrogant, he's bold, he destroys a lot of people, he overthrows the sanctuary. This is very similar to what happened when the Babylonians took uh, Daniel and others into exile, and they took the holy vessels from the temple. Remember, we read about that in the very first chapter of Daniel. At the, when the Babylonians took the Jews into exile, they took a lot of the vessels from the temple. Right? After the 70 years of exile, they're allowed to go back home. Cyrus the Persian sends some of the Jews back to Judah, sends the holy vessels of the temple back with them that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, and they rebuild the temple. Now, hundreds of years after that, the temple is once again being ransacked by a Gentile, right, who's taking all these holy vessels for himself. Uh, Several verses later, it says, On every side of the sanctuary, they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary. So they defiled the temple. And as if that was not enough, it goes on to say, The king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be as one people, and each should abandon his customs. And all the peoples complied according to the word of the king. And many from Israel consented to his service. And they sacrificed to idols and defiled the Sabbath. 
And the king sent letters in the hands of messengers to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, going after the customs of foreigners of the land, and to withhold burnt offerings and drink offering from the sanctuary, and to profane Sabbaths and festivals, and to defile the sanctuary and holy things, to build altars and shrines and idols, and sacrifice pigs and common beasts, and to leave their sons uncircumcised, to make repulsive their souls with all impurity and profanation, so as to forget the law and to change all their customs. And whoever should not act according to the word of the king will die. So this man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he says, not only can you not sacrifice in your temple anymore, not only am I going to defile your temple and take all the holy vessels from your temple, we're also going to encourage you to offer sacrifices to idols, to worship at altars other than the altar to the one true God. We're going to encourage you to sacrifice pigs, which your God has said is unclean and should not even be eaten, much less sacrificed, and to sacrifice other common animals, unclean animals. We're going to encourage you not to circumcise your sons, which is the sign of the covenant that your God gave to you to remind you of His promises to you. He's trying to get them, as it says, to forget the law and to change all their customs. Oh, and by the way, and if you don't do what I say, you'll die. This is what Daniel saw in his vision. This is the little horn that Daniel was warned about, who was so terrible, so awful, and so destructive. This is the one who overthrew the sanctuary. This is the one who took away the burnt offering. This is the one who um, Daniel didn't know by name. Right, but who saw symbolically in his vision. Now, Daniel, when he saw this vision, was terribly disturbed. Verse 27 of Daniel 8 says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So, first of all, there's a word of encouragement there. If you say, there's still some parts of that I don't think I understand. Well, neither did Daniel. Neither did Daniel. But Daniel was disturbed by what he saw, troubled, appalled by it, because there were terrible things that God was telling Daniel would take place. That did take place several hundred years later. But here's the lesson that we learn from the book of Daniel. That not only was true for Daniel and true for those who lived through the days of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, but also for all of us and whatever trials and tribulations we may live through. God was no less in control when Antiochus Epiphanes was wreaking havoc in Jerusalem than he was in control when Nebuchadnezzar came and took the Jews away into exile. The first half of Daniel tells us what did happen. The second half of Daniel tells us what's going to happen. But both halves of Daniel tell us that God is always in control. 
that even when evil, arrogant kings like Nebuchadnezzar or Antiochus IV, even when they rise up and do terrible things to God's people, their reign and their power always has a limit, and God always has them on a leash, and He can humble them whenever He wants, like He did with Nebuchadnezzar. He can break them whenever He is done allowing them to do the evil things they do like he did eventually with Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he tells us these things so that we will know that no matter how dark things get, no matter how hard things get, no matter how much God's people suffer, and Jesus made no bones about the fact that his followers will suffer. We will be persecuted in one way or another. No matter how much of that we endure, God has given us no reason to believe that when that happens, that means that things are outside of His control. He has said exactly the opposite over and over and over, not only in Daniel, but all throughout the Scriptures, that He is in control. And the supreme example of that is the darkest event in the whole Bible, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. That is more horrifying than what Antiochus did to the Jews. It is more terrible than being thrown into a lion's den or being thrown into a fiery furnace. What happened to the Son of God when He was nailed to a Roman cross is darker than all of those things. More evil than all of those things. And yet, what does the Bible say? It was God's plan. It was God's purpose. It was God's will for His Son to be crushed Because as he was crushed on the cross, he was crushing Satan. He was paying for sin. He was securing salvation for all who would trust in him. And it was just a brief period, three days, before he came back out of the tomb To show that though it seemed that darkness had prevailed, that though it seemed evil had no limit, that even through that darkness, God had been in control, God had a plan, and God had secured victory and vindication for His people, even in the midst of the darkness. And so no matter what we face, no matter what comes our way, no matter whether we end up living through a period of even greater suffering and persecution and tribulation, we will have every reason to know and to believe that however long evil may be allowed to prevail, no matter how long God's people may have to suffer and endure hardship, God will put an end to it. And He will deliver His people through it. And He will vindicate all those who have trusted in Him. And all those who have perpetrated such evil and have not repented will face the judgment of God. But for those who trust in the Son of God, crucified and risen on their behalf, there will be no condemnation, but only vindication 
And the Bible says that not only will we see His face, but we will get to reign with Him. Let's pray.